walk in the blink of an eye. Life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies. Beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down. And the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Episode 32, Peripheral Friends. Hello, everyone. It's so good to know how many are listening in together. I know our last episode, Stay Alert, was tough for many listeners, moms, family members, and medical staff alike. I heard from so many of you. It was rough. I know. And I was reading from so many of you how it made you think a lot about unexpected medical events. Yeah, I think when we pause and consider deeper aspects of our lives, I hope it can prepare us for whatever life does bring. And each time we're listening in together to a story and thinking together intentionally, thoughtfully, it's a collective effort of positive energy, raising the vibration. And that's good for trauma healing for all of us. Oh, just feel it and take it in. It really is so that we impact healing with our intentions and our thoughts. I mean, quantum physics and the study and experience of metaphysical connections, both are helping us understand more and more about this. If that interests you, it does interest me. Stay tuned for future seasons where I will interview wise people in these fields. Wow. It's hard to believe this is our second to last episode in season one. Thank you for journeying with me. I trust that all of you regular listeners and subscribers know, but if you're tuning in for the first time, I thought I'd let you know that we will be ending season one soon. I know. It's hard for me to believe, too. We have traveled so far together. And we have one more episode to go this season that you don't want to miss. So make sure you stay subscribed. You can also sign up for updates on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com. We'll be taking a break after that so we can produce episodes for season two. But we promise to stay connected with you during our break. We'll be offering a few bonus episodes during the time between seasons one and two that will include some of the full interviews with the extraordinary people behind the scenes of the Blink of an Eye story. You will hear from doctors and friends and we're preparing a special montage of Archer's guy friends, too. You'll recognize them from earlier episodes when I introduced you to them. And you'll have a chance to get to know them a little bit better 
and consider their perspective. Then I'll be back for season two with the story and the trauma healing learnings. If I haven't already told you, know I have really felt you walking with me this season. It is still hard for me to believe what all happened in the first week of our unfolding trauma. Well, there's more, much more, and we'll start covering that ground in season two. Okay, so where we are now in the blink of an eye story, I am about to wonder aloud about the confusion I think many families feel when they are in the hospital when something bad has happened. There's confusion about something they don't understand and confusion that something doesn't make sense to them. And they might be confused, as I was, about the use of narcotics. So let's get ready to open our hearts as we experience more deeply all sides of a situation gone bad. Join me as we consider the pressure on families in trauma and the pressures on medical staff. I will cover secondary trauma in the accompanying Trauma Healing Learnings episode, which you can listen to right here in the Blink of an Eye podcast feed. And I want to give a shout out to all the people who come forward in a trauma to offer support to others. Peripheral friends can provide a connective tissue that allows the mind in trauma to access a resource, positive memory, it may not have known it has. Okay, so sit back, Settle your spirit wherever you are, whatever you're doing, emptying the thoughts of your mind and anticipate something good for yourself. Everyone might need a little something different in this episode. Here we go. Life can change in the blink of an eye. August 12th. Day eight, it was so rough. I still had that image of the silent scream. I couldn't get out of my mind. Poor Archer. I couldn't imagine the pain he had experienced. That surge of intense pain in his head, all that internal pressure. I mean, it built until it caused his eardrums to rupture. God. I was just so relieved it was over. But why had that happened? As I lay huddled up in the recliner chair next to Archer's bed, I zipped up the extra sweatshirt hoodie the boys had brought for me and pulled the hood up over my head. I slipped off my summer sandals and wrapped my feet in another sweatshirt, curling up in a position or I could watch Archer's monitors and hopefully try to rest as I had promised Billy I would. It was cold in Archer's room 
the nurses and techs still came in and out doing various things, and it was otherwise peaceful. Fentanyl. That's what they said they gave Archer. I wasn't sure what it was, but the other nurse had said morphine. I wasn't even sure how to spell fentanyl. Fentanyl. Oh, my God. I was really haunted that night about why Archer was given fentanyl when he was already on a number of other pain relievers. I didn't understand the use of them. I didn't understand the need for them. And I was very unfamiliar with the names of the various drugs. I also was never consulted about any of these drugs. At least I don't remember being consulted. They were just administered. I don't know, maybe they asked. Maybe I don't remember. But what I do recall is that I just went along with everything. I trusted the doctors. I trusted the nurses. Why wouldn't I? But as I tried to keep warm in the recliner, watching Archer rest, I began to wonder if I should be asking. I'm a curious person by nature. And as my mom used to tell me, a born lawyer, whatever that meant. But she always told me this when I was asking about something doggedly, trying to figure it out or press her to give in to the point where I think she used the word to mean strong-willed. I'd hear her on the telephone talking to my grandmother when I was a little girl saying, Louise should be a lawyer. I was probably like 10 or 11 years old, and I wasn't sure that was a good thing. As I got older, I remembered she'd tell me on many occasions that I could advocate for anything I believed in. I felt good about that. But she'd tell me, be careful of what you ask for, Louise. (laughs) I remember asking my grandmother, And she told me I was creative and had an ability to make something out of nothing. (laughs) She used the expression, turn a sow's ear into a silk purse. I didn't fully understand it, but I liked it because I knew she said it with love. Well, whatever ability that was, I think I learned it from her. But the side the outside world saw of me was that of a good girl. I was not a bold girl, and I certainly was not precocious. I held back a great deal in the name of good manners and being nice and ladylike. That's what my mom valued most. (laughs) We can talk about that sometime later. Maybe many of you can look back when you were a young girl or boy to see how you were shaped by your parents and grandparents. I thought about these things as I watched Archer. There were times in the late evening watching the monitors when I would think about a lot of things. (laughs) My Aunt Alice had washed my cousin Amy's mouth out with a bar of soap one time when I was there sternly reprimanding her for being sassy. 
That scared me. She was disrespectful to her mother at times. I didn't want to be disrespectful to mine. But the times I had trouble keeping my mouth closed as a girl or when I thought another grown-up was doing or saying something that didn't make sense. Like a school principal. <laughs> oh, I was pretty plucky and I would usually ask questions. And my mom would tell me, Louise, you are going to get yourself in trouble. And that's when I would hear, it's not ladylike. But my grandma, who raised me also, would say, you can ask at home, but not in public. My grandmother would tell me I was going to grow up and be anything I wanted. So every time I would hear my mom say to all of us kids when we were going somewhere public, children are to be seen and not heard. I knew I had to be on my best behavior, at least in public. But I secretly couldn't wait to be a grown-up. You may have grown up like that, too. Or maybe not, depending on how old you are. It's a bit different for the younger generations. But there I was in Atlanticare. I was not a child. I was a mother. My child was in the bed and had just undergone a day of hell that I didn't understand and didn't feel anyone had explained to me. I had so many questions because it didn't make sense. But I wasn't sure I could ask questions. I didn't want to alienate the medical staff or have them think I didn't trust them. We needed them. Have you ever had that experience where you want to question someone, but you're worried that they might take offense or get put on the defensive, and so you stay quiet? Yeah, I think it's a common fear and a common reaction. My mom would have referred to this kind of questioning, questioning that might make someone uncomfortable as bad manners and disrespectful. That was really ingrained in me, and I'm grateful to her for that. But my personality was perhaps stronger than my social upbringing, for better or for worse. I admired what my mother was trying to teach me about, at best, respect for authority and never pressing your advantage with those who are weaker. I loved that she taught me that. But I also watched how much my mother was taken advantage of by one person in particular. And I felt helpless when I was young that she was. But now I was in this hospital. I was bothered that I was maybe getting taken advantage of because none of these experts were giving me information or answering my questions. Yeah, when I was a young girl, when I felt someone was getting one over on somebody else and getting away with it, or not getting called out for it, I wanted to stop it. But I didn't have the language or the ability. 
but I had been a little girl then. And there I was in that ICU, watchdogging Archer's monitors and confused about the nagging feeling that something didn't make sense. I wasn't sure what to do. I did feel the comfort of friends, though. I did. Every time I glanced at my phone, there would be a bunch of text messages from so many people telling me to stay strong and telling me they were praying. And many also told me they were asking others to pray as well. I can't tell you the comfort I felt knowing that that was happening outside the hospital for us. You might remember Kathy Giannoskoli, a Cape May Beach neighbor whose family also goes to the shore when our family does. We've become close friends over the years as we returned summer after summer to the same beach. I knew her boys went to a school called Malvern in Pennsylvania, but I didn't even know it was a Catholic school. I didn't know at the time we had a shared faith. But here's an interview excerpt as part of our look back five years later. As Kathy and I discussed the comfort and possibilities in collective prayer. I think when I reached out to the Augustinians at Malvern, they kind of took the ball and ran with it too. It went it went in bigger circles after that. And I have a few friends who are the type of people, if you reach out to them, they have bigger circles as well. And I think that's how it ballooned, at least on my end. And I'm sure you had other friends that were doing the same thing too. Yes, I did. But I didn't fully understand it then. Perhaps I'll never fully understand it, nor do I have to. What I do know is that that night on day eight, after a harrowing day, I felt those collective prayers. I did. I had just reached out to those closest to me, my brothers and sisters, Billy's brother and sister, and a few dear friends. I looked back and there were 12 other people who are close to me, who had their circles of, of friends and they were all over the country. And so I think that's what began this swell of, we were already connected, but we became very interconnected. With each I, don't, I don't doubt it. Yes, I don't doubt it. To know there were people I didn't even know who were praying for Archer was very uplifting. All these peripheral friends, <laughs> you know, related to someone, related to someone else, related to that someone. I felt the connection, like we were ancestrally connected or something. But it was even deeper than that. It was like we belonged together. Somehow, I mattered in their world. Archer mattered in their world, and they mattered in ours. Yeah, 
It's like we belong to each other. I belonged in their world and they belonged in mine. You know, I love the work of the great anthropologist, Margaret Mead. And I have one of her quotes in my office to this day. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, I know you can recite this with me, I bet many of you out there. Let's do it together because it's powerful. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. I love that. Well, I was thinking about that quote that night, and I remember smiling even as I watched Archer so laid out and so spent. And I put a little twist on that saying in my mind. Never doubt what a small group of prayer warriors can do to bring comfort in an upside-down world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And I felt that comfort. I also was amazed by all the peripheral friendships that I had taken for granted or just hadn't realized they were the ones holding me up in my world. They were really part of my scaffolding. Many of them got my phone number somehow and seemed to enter our world in a way that wasn't so peripheral. They were actually quite central, you know, lending me so much comfort. Other families on the beach that I'd only noticed from afar season after season. The young woman in my favorite dress shop. The visiting priest I had known in different contexts for years prior. The Italian brothers who owned the fudge kitchen in Cape May. The quiet neighbors next door who had just moved in. They were all there for us and were texting me and taking care of my family. It was extraordinary. And it was so comforting. Thank you, peripheral friends. You might have some peripheral friends to thank too. As I looked up from my phone and back to the blinking monitors, my thoughts shifted quickly. Had I missed anything? I felt a jump in anxiety. My thoughts about Archer and the staff began to race again. I thought about earlier in the morning when I was jolted up as I was reciting a rosary and I looked up to see the medical team that had entered Archer's room for more assessments of a spinal cord injury. That was confusing to me. I mean, a nurse a day ago had said again that a spinal cord injury like Archer's is complete. And any movement I report is just a muscle spasm. So why would they keep coming back the way they do to continue assessing the capacity if he can feel his arms, his wrists, his hands, his fingers, 
his feet if it was just muscle spasms. It felt like I was getting conflicting information again. I just thought that nurse must be wrong. I wanted to believe them all. They were medical professionals, but I found myself starting to doubt them. Archer's pain was the proof. I mulled over the different reports from the different medical staff. Some of the doctors, nurses, and techs who were so definitive, they were the ones I was most leery of. Thinking about it, I felt myself getting upset again. I've got to get information to understand this. We've got to figure this out. I went out in the hall to look, but didn't see any doctors. I asked the nurse in the donut hole if she could send any doctor familiar with Archer's situation to room 3117 because I had some questions I told her from an earlier situation. She said, I'll let them know. She was staring at her screen when I gave her our room number. I could tell, though, she was locating us amidst the many other patient rooms she was monitoring from afar. And then she said, things look good. And then she asked, is everything okay? It was kind of her to ask. I paused and said, no, not really. And I walked back to Archer's room. Something was just not right here. I settled back in and began to read texts from all these peripheral friends who weren't so peripheral anymore. Most of them identified themselves, thank goodness, since I had no idea which person went with which number on my screen. What each of them said triggered good memories for me and good feelings right there bedside to Archer. Isn't that crazy? These relationships were allowing me to remember something good, something I may have forgotten, but I really hadn't forgotten. It was in my memory. They allowed me to access it. Things that were lovely, peripheral, like the sweet taste of homemade fudge that took my mind off the worry. And in that moment, everything felt okay. Even sweet. I looked at Archer. I remember marveling at this ability like I was observing myself. And it was like I was having this, I don't know, like out-of-body experience. I mean, it wasn't that. But it was this experience of being aware of being aware. That's the only way I know how to describe it. I bet that's happened to you, too. Here's an example of one of those peripheral friends who had that kind of impact on me. Remember Mary Ellen McNally? 
the angel who caught me as I collapsed at mass in episode 26? Well, here's an excerpt of our look back five years later. As you listen to Mary Ellen, you might think of peripheral friends or relationships you have. You may not even think about them as contributing to your well-being. Maybe you take them for granted like I did. You might not even know their names, but they know you and you matter to them. And they are there to support you. And I hope I will do the same for them if I am one of their peripheral friends, helping to hold them up in bad times. Whatever tangential connection we have. Yeah, it was it was just because of, you know, I certainly I don't live near you at home, you know, but our sons went to schools that were, you know, similar and they played each other in sports. And so, you know, people from my son's school, which is probably a hundred miles away, knew about your son through some of your other neighbors in Cape May, right? Everybody was was devastated, but they they, nobody's ever going to be as devastated as you were. You're his mom. Mary Ellen and I talked about devastation and gratitude and reflected on how we really were peripheral to each other. But yet, she just happened to be at that Sunday Mass serendipitously or fortuitously or just sent to offer me comfort just a few days prior when she so gracefully caught me as my knees buckled when I heard the prayer petitions and the lady speak into the microphone asking the entire congregation to pray for Archer Semft, who is paralyzed. And I fell over practically into her arms. Mary Ellen, I didn't even know God you were God puts you where he needs you to be. And so you needed me and he put me there. Just go with that, Louise. That's what I go with, you know. But yeah, it, it was, um, I, I could only imagine if, so, if it had happened to Patrick and somebody had said his name like that, I think I would have done the same thing as you. Yeah, because it was such a day of, I mean, at that time, it was so new, it was so fresh, you had no idea what was coming, or even whether he would make it. And so it was, it was overwhelming, I'm sure. It was overwhelming for me, and it wasn't my son. I have been particularly struck over all these years later, how so many people have shared that experience with me. And I have received so much mail about it as well. Well, while I have worked on metabolizing my own shock and healing my family's loss and our changes, I have wondered what it must have been like for others, friends, and yes, peripheral friends too. We do impact each other. 
what happens to one can send shockwaves to the other. You know, like this could happen to me. My mom used to say, but for the grace of God, there go I. I think of those who were on the beach that day or others with children the same age or who were simply in our same corner of the world and what it was like for them when they heard the news. The presence of others in our lives and us and theirs is part of this reciprocal relational exchange of what can give life meaning. You know what I mean? I mean, how we affect each other, even without knowing it. We are in each other's worlds, you know. And what happens to one really does impact the others, causing both to become even reflective on their own lives. That's exactly. And you know, I've been so curious about what it was like. And when you say it was overwhelming for you, then it wasn't even your son. And yet you could you could easily say it could have been my son. Of course. I think that's, I mean, I don't know how many other women you've talked to in the beach that have, you know, children that are the same age as your sons, but when when they're in that town, you just think they're in this microcosm of safety and they ride their bike everywhere. And yeah, they have accidents, but they come home, they have friends all over town. They go surfing when the surf is up and they go body surfing and they have a boat and then they go out on the boat and they go fishing. And you just think because they have done this their whole life that everything is fine. And to have Archer damaged in something that any one of our children could have done any single day. I, it was just, it was mind boggling. It was mind boggling. That is how I felt as I watched Archer in the ICU with day eight coming to a close. These peripheral friends allowed me to feel connected and to access sweet memories. And then to wonder, how is all of this even happening? It was almost surreal. And the power these relationships I took so much for granted had on me. There they were, people who just showed up in my life, who had always been there. Maybe I didn't really see them as I rushed around living our life. Has this experience happened to you before? Well, I did see them, but I could really see them now in a new way, in a new light. And they provided such relief with a reminder of so much that is good. 
Well, those thoughts sent me thinking about Archer. He was a hard worker, but he also had this carefree spirit. I could see him riding his fat tire bicycle all over Cape May. Oh, Lord, please tell me what I'm supposed to do to restore him. I will do anything. Archer's breathing was still so labored, but he seemed calm. God, I saw that silent scream image of him again. Please, Lord, get that out of my mind. I watched him again. And then I was just relieved again because it was over. He was okay. I wondered about that burning pain, though, that he had also reported. And some of that seemed to be in his arms. But he looked peaceful now. But I had these crazy becoming obsessive-like thoughts. How could it be that he had that kind of pain in his arms when they said he was paralyzed? Maybe he wasn't really paralyzed like they say. And why was it burning? All I could think of was maybe it meant he still had nerve endings. Maybe it meant he wouldn't be paralyzed forever. They could be wrong, you know. What happened earlier was proof of that. They don't necessarily know everything. It gave me an odd sense of comfort that maybe they didn't. When the next pair of nurses came in to rotate Archer, I asked them about the burning pain. They had no idea. And again, just told me the standard. If I had questions, I could ask a doctor. Well, it was late, but I was getting kind of mad. I was tired of being in the dark. So I got out of the recliner again and went out into the hallway looking for a doctor. I did find one. I was learning that questions for doctors had to be phrased in a certain way. Hi, I'm Louise Vipsemft. I have a son here down the hall who's a quadriplegic. I was just out wondering about some things generally. I know you're not his doctor, but I was hoping you might just talk with me generally about quadriplegia. Or if it were a tech, I would approach it like, hey, I know we just got that film of Archer's lungs, but I was also wondering if while you're here, we could just look really, really quick. We'll just take a second at the films of his neck or whatever it was, or his abdomen. I mean, just right there. It's right there in his record. I could point to it. That's how I found out Archer had all these healthy organs. I mean, I knew that. But honestly, with the way I did feel or the way I felt they were making me feel, I didn't know that. I was beginning to not know what I knew. So I wanted to see the evidence. The doctor in the hall was helpful. And I learned 
that Archer's burning pain was likely what he called neurogenic pain. And it was related to the nerves trying, he said, to regulate themselves due to the severe damage to his spinal cord, which he said disrupts the transmission of sensory signals to the brain. Okay, that was helpful. I can understand that. I had not heard anything about that before. So I asked him, can it repair itself? He said that is something he really could not comment on. Okay, that was fine because that told me maybe it was not decided and thus was possible. So I tacked and asked, we're in day eight here and he has this pain. About how long does this neurogenic pain last? He said it was hard to say. I pressed a little further. Well, is it episodic or is it something that happens early on in a spinal cord injury and then goes away? He said, it depends. And I asked, depends on what? He said, well, for some people, neuropathic pain can persist for long periods of time. That was scary. I rolled this over in my mind, stacked up to the assurances the x-ray techs who had come in to take the regular films of Archer's chest, sometimes his neck, sometimes his abdomen, what they had told me, that other than Archer's collapsed lungs, he was completely healthy. That was such a relief. So I asked the doctor, you referred to neurogenic pain and then just now to neuropathic pain. What's the difference? He said that neuropathic pain is a subset of neurogenic pain. Okay. I asked, what kind of pain does a quadriplegic have? He said it would be better that he not comment. Fair enough. He wasn't Archer's doctor. So I then asked him, what about for quadriplegics generally? What kind of pain is excruciating pain in the head, like where the head's about to combust and is so forceful and high pressure that it causes the eardrums to explode and last for hours? He looked at me straight on, maybe quizzically, and said, I don't know. I didn't know either. But what I did know was that something was not right. I walked back to Archer's room and I felt like we had to get out of there. I know that sounds crazy, but I didn't know what to trust or whom to trust. God, I was worried about Archer. Maybe he was so drugged up that he had brain damage from whatever happened. I just didn't want it to happen again. And I began to cry. It was so hard because I just wanted to cry a lot. But I didn't have my drive home where I could just wail.
I felt like I was about to combust. But Archer slept on calmly. Uncomfortable, maybe. But calm. One of the awarenesses is that I knew how devastated I was, but I had no ability to really know how devastated I was because I was so in all of that overwhelm. Like it almost takes months, if not years, to kind of realize the devastation, making sense of it, but to really fully, I don't even fully realize it now, you know, it's still shaping my life now. Sure it is. But I think that's the case for a lot of things that are considered traumatic events. Because when, exactly you're, right. when you're in a traumatic event, you're just trying to survive. Yes. Right. And so when you're, when you're, um, and then later, if you, if it goes away and the repercussions are all taken care of, then you might have the luxury of thinking about it. But some people maybe never get that luxury to think about it. You know, that's a that's an interesting view, and one I really resonate with. That we almost have to. I don't know of anybody who escapes trauma. No, I don't think so. In life, right? Something's no. going to happen. Divorce. No, does. I agree. Loss of a child. Loss of a sister. A really bad accident. You know, you name it. It's just stuff mm-hmm. happens. And we almost must create the luxury of looking back to be able to make sense of things in order to really metabolize and be whole again. As I watched Archer... My looking back was painful. Oh, yes, there were the sweet memories. But it seemed I just couldn't stick with them for very long before I was jarred back into reality as a new buzzer went off or more medical personnel entered to do something. It was constant. I couldn't get my brain around this injury. And perhaps I wasn't willing to. But I did allow my mind to wander. And when it was pleasant, it was a small relief. I closed my eyes to see Archer riding away from our house again on his red beach cruiser bike. I didn't want to lose that memory. But I felt the sting in my eyes again as that memory was bitter as well as sweet. I wanted to get Archer back to his carefree spirit. Please, Lord. I took out my rosary and I prayed hard. I wanted to stay close to God. I needed God. I needed my family and my siblings. And my friends, I needed all the peripheral relationships. And I needed this medical staff to get him better. 
And as I prayed, I felt stronger about asking questions. And I felt reassured that God would guide me. And this new strength changed my next interaction with the stream of nurses who entered Archer's room. The next set that came in, I asked what they were doing, gently. And I had all kinds of preparatory language that would have pleased my mom. Like, is it okay if I ask you what you're putting in Archer's drip bag? And is it okay if you could maybe show me the label of what you're putting in Archer's drip bag? They were okay. Maybe a little hesitant, but it went okay. So I did it the rest of the night. And I realized that if it were saline, they generally tell me. But if it were something else, and I didn't know what that medication was, they'd say something like, if you have any questions, I know I can ask the doctor. I did feel pawned off again. Can't they just answer simple questions? I mean, they went to nursing school. I didn't. When I pressed, where could I find the doctor's orders to read myself? I was told I would have to make a request for Archer's medical records. That steamed me up. I mean, it really just deflated me. You know how I went on a very unsuccessful scavenger hunt before to request his medical records around the x-ray history. Still, I don't even know exactly what drugs Archer was on, for what and for how long. And we were on day eight. That's a long time to be on oxytocin or whatever else they were giving him in the drip bags. I'd be curious about your thoughts on that. And it was beginning to not only make me mad, it was also raising my suspicions. Why can't patients have their medical histories available to them, just like they're available to the medical staff? I don't like to be suspicious. I don't. But I wasn't sure whom to trust if they couldn't just tell me simple information about my son. The crazy part is, I was then beginning to chastise myself for becoming suspicious. I don't like that quality. Just because they didn't tell me doesn't mean something was wrong, I was telling myself. I mean, people hold back information for a variety of reasons. I knew that as a mediator. But I also knew from experience that the main reasons people don't disclose is for their own advantage and out of fear. I realized they spoke a language, medical ease, that I did not know, and they were not making it any easier for me. And even when one or two of the kind nurses did answer my question by giving me the name of the medication in the drip bag, it meant nothing to me. 
I felt so powerless. It was 2015 and I was not an app user on my phone. Think now how I could have looked everything up. I get that. But I actually want to underscore the experience that why should families have to, in a medical setting that is so intense, be put in the position of having to look things up? But I was so relieved. I know I've said that already, and I can't say it enough. I was relieved because it was over. Thank God. My boy was okay. I looked at Archer. I could feel the tears stinging in my eyes again. We are going to get out of here, Archer, sweetheart. We're going to get you to rehab and you're going to walk again. I said it aloud. I wanted to believe it. I did believe it. And I wanted Archer to believe it. As I tried to get comfortable in the recliner chair, you know what else I couldn't get off my mind? Oh my gosh, my mind was everywhere. I wondered, don't they have any idea that my son could become addicted to all that stuff if they keep giving it to him? I had worked in the inner city of Baltimore many years ago in the 1990s. I knew what narcotics could do. It was more of a tragic thought. I don't know, like an arm's length thought I had back then during my volunteer work. Like, it's so sad. How could they do that to themselves? I realize now it was a thought shaped from my life of privilege. White privilege. My children were all very young. Some not even born during that decade when I worked to create the Safe Haven Network. Corridors of safety to and from school for inner city kids. I knew a fair amount about street drugs and street violence, and that drug trade caused kids to be without parents and miss getting educated. I cared a lot about education, and so I put my energies there. And I live in Baltimore, and I love it. And I wanted a good place for my kids and other people's kids. It didn't matter where they were. I wanted to do my part to try to help this inner city problem. And then, as my own children got older and attended independent high schools, I began to see that drug addiction can come from oxytocin and oxycontin in a medicine cabinet. Oh, I remember, I'll never forget the night I attended a parent lecture at one of their schools. Oh my golly, this was probably like, 10 years before Archer's accident. And I learned about the oxys and Percocet. I had never heard those names before. And I learned how kids can steal them from their parents' medicine cabinets. And that can lead to heroin addiction. Heroin. Oh, I remember being scared to death. 
I also remember racing home to see what we had in our medicine cabinet. And sure enough, we had three pill bottles from old surgeries of unused pain medication, teeth extraction, root canal, and foot surgery. We were a pretty healthy lot, I guess. But I can tell you, I got rid of them. That piece of information was very empowering to me then. As I tried to get comfortable, curled up in the recliner, looking at Archer, watching Archer, that new knowledge then, <laughs> the wake-up call, didn't seem so empowering anymore. I was frankly getting more frightened about all the narcotics and how something called fentanyl might mess him up. I remembered the recent interview with Dr. Tolucci, the chief of trauma at Atlantic Care. Even though it was five years later, I raised my concern about narcotics with him. I think it's fair to say he wasn't ready to talk about what I wanted to talk about. But I hope we will when we speak again in a future interview. The discussion is as important for medical personnel as it is for patients, as it is for society. But not only because of the dangers of addiction, but because of the impact on the personal lives of doctors and nurses who feel the need to dispense narcotics readily. What Dr. Tolucci did say made me realize more things, and I was grateful for the opportunity to verbalize my thoughts. I'll have the full interview for you between seasons. So, I, so I've got a couple of things swirling around in my head. I mean, one is... I've, I've thought a great deal about the medical profession uh, these five years, and I have a lot of um, views. And, and one of them, and that comes for me completely out of compassion is, it's no wonder whether it's in trauma or whether it's in any ER room or, or anywhere where a patient is suffering, whether there's been a prior relationship or not, it's no wonder that there's there's so many narcotics. I know it was bold to ask Dr. Tolucci, but we had that kind of relationship back then where I could have asked then, had I been more aware and present of a larger issue besides just Archer being on narcotics. He shared with me in the interview that he thinks the nurses would take a bullet for anyone. But I wanted to explore the inner experience of nurses and doctors of secondary trauma. We were kind of a little off the topic a little bit. Okay, fair enough. Maybe he and I will get to this topic in another interview. It's true that during our stay in the intensive care unit, Archer was put on many narcotic cocktails. And I do want to explore that in season two and future episodes. 
the trend started in these early days. And my concern about it started then too. (laughs) Thanks to those early parent lectures at my kids' high schools in the early 2000s. And I'm wondering why narcotics are used so freely and quickly in ICUs. Have you ever wondered about that too? A view I hold after an intense week in the ICU is this. I think it's a knee-jerk, perhaps even habitual response for doctors to prescribe and nurses to give opioids to ICU patients to reduce pain because opioids are effective and easy pain relievers. Okay, we all might say, we get that. But I think even now with what we know, it's really complicated because family members like me, we want our hospitalized child or loved one to not be in pain. That unto itself is a lot of pressure on medical staff. It is. It's got to be. It's no wonder opioids were so habitually prescribed. But I think there's a deeper explanation for why the opioids are prescribed and given so readily, at least based on what I saw and experienced. And it's a compassionate view of how the problem maybe even came about in the first place. I do feel compassion towards doctors and nurses. I think the opioid epidemic was complicated by an easily accessible and very effective drug to stop the suffering of medical staff. Imagine if you had to witness day in and day out the agony that very injured people endured from accidents and painful procedures. You might be prone to wanting to numb yourself out too. Either you go for the bottle yourself, which we know is real, and happens with a higher frequency in the medical profession than in other professions, which usually gets attributed to easy access. But I would say there's something else. Secondary trauma. Yeah. Most patients in hospitals and trauma-intensive care units are in pain. Real physical pain. And some like Archer was are in excruciating physical pain. Of course, medical staff would want to do all they could to end this pain for the patients, but also for themselves. Since I had never before been inside a trauma unit to even think about these things, I began to ponder And I pondered these things on long nights, bedside with Archer. I felt the comfort and support of all the prayers and text messages of family and peripheral friends. I also sat there thinking how confusing it all was. Not understanding the intensity of Archer's head pain and what happened. I didn't understand the burning pain. 
I didn't like it that he was on all these narcotics. And I felt really unsupported by staff. Just then, I could hear the flaps of a helicopter coming into the hospital trauma landing pad. I had heard them in the night a few times now since we've arrived. Big flapping sounds. I will never forget those winged sounds. And it's a funny thing. When something horrendous has happened to you, I think you develop an especial affinity for those similarly situated. You know what I mean? My mom used to say, misery loves company. But as soon as I heard those flap, flap, flapping of the helicopter wings nearing the hospital, I closed my eyes. I remember the night Archer came in and I said a prayer for whoever it was and their family. And that part just came natural to me. <laughs> Oh my gosh. You want to know why? There was this lady my mom hired to drive the three of us that, well, the three of us, the older kids to school when my mom was home with my youngest brother and my brand new born baby sister. Ursula Began was her name. And she was a very, very religious woman with uneven black bangs. Like she had cut them herself with kitchen scissors. And she wore tule, heavy black glasses like Walter Cronkite and a huge heavy metal cross hanging around her neck. And she would tell us as children to always pray whenever we heard a fire engine or an ambulance. I can hear her now. Children, start praying. She and my mom would practically pull over every time one would be coming to get out of their way, all the while saying a Hail Mary. Maybe you do the same thing. I can hear my mom saying again, but for the grace of God, there I go. I mean, it was one of her favorite sayings. And as I listened to those loud flapping wings and I looked at my archer, the thought filled me up was thank you and I said a little prayer for whoever was in that chopper I knew I'd meet them soon here in the trauma unit I was grateful for Atlantic care and I was grateful for all my blessings we had Archer alive and he was going to walk again. We were just in a bad time, but we'd get through it. We would. You know, highs and lows at Atlantic Care, how could there not be in such a catastrophic situation? Exactly. I prayed that Grace would get us through. And I knew I didn't have a crystal ball. And I knew I wasn't supposed to. I did want to trust the medical staff. Oh, I so did. And you know what? As the flapping of that chopper faded, I remember having this thought. It just came over me. You know how that is. 
I wondered if staff felt unsupported too. I mean, our situation was heartbreaking enough. What they have to endure. What was their support? Did they have peripheral friends texting them every day the way I did? I felt this wave of compassion and sorrow come over me. It's no wonder they have Archer on all these narcotics. Opioids, they are a form of relief. Maybe their hearts were breaking too. This narcotics thing is complicated. I had a lot to think about as the night wore on. In closing this day, trauma, it's very real. It's all around us, especially for those in emergency medicine and emergency response teams. There's never any such thing as only one person impacted by trauma. The shock of trauma uproots our lives, ravages our bodies, stirs our emotions, twists our thoughts, wipes us out. In the darkness of trauma and despair, there is ground to reroute. Friends and peripheral friends remind us of this potential. And ongoing daily conversations with God give us strength and help us clarify what we need help with. And we can ask. And making time for prayer and silence allows us to listen to God's response. And it might come as calm or a new way of seeing something or a new way of viewing someone or of viewing this life. <laughs> if you haven't prayed in a while or maybe you don't have a prayer practice at all, that's okay. Just find a quiet moment could be bedside your loved one. Close your eyes. You might try and quiet your mind by just sitting in silence for a few minutes, even when we finish this story today. Ask God for whatever it is you need. Miracles are possible, and they do spring from darkness. It's never totally dark because there's always potential for new life. Everything is possible in God's time. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. You may continue listening to the learnings that go with this story at Trauma Healing Learning Peripheral Friends. Thank you for listening as together we are raising the vibration for healing.
This episode is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. For 28 years, Baltimore Mediation has served clients worldwide by facilitating negotiation breakthroughs, believing in their capacity for meaningful face-to-face dialogue as they work through difficult, emotional, and complicated family, divorce, and family business situations. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Please subscribe via email on our site, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. 